All right, Dr. Sanford, good to see you. Great to be here. Happy Advent. Happy Advent, indeed. Yeah, we're getting close. You know, I, I uh, today's the seventeenth, and it struck me in one week it'll be Christmas Eve. So, we're and there. isn't this the day that uh, what are they called the um, the Old Testament? What, what what is the word I'm looking for? You start the uh, the, the the last uh, seven eight days of uh, Christmas. Uh, an octave, we're, but I'm not sure of. Uh, yeah, I'll, we begin the O antiphons. There you today. go, ah, the O, the o okay. antiphons. Okay. Good. I'm, <laughs> thank you for bailing me out there, Doctor Rober. Okay, no so yeah, so yeah. we're getting close, aren't we? Great, great. Yes, indeed. And uh, so today, it's it um, just to remind our listeners, we're um, focusing on elements of the education we provide at the University of Dallas. We've been talking about virtues for. Um, Boy, a year and a half mm-hmm. now or yeah, so, at least. And, and we've cycled through all the virtues, which is different than saying that that we've we've acquired all of the virtues. <laughs> um, so there's there's always more to learn. Today I have a real treat for you. Um, we have as our guest Dr. Greg Roper, who is the chair of the English department. And um, our listeners may not know that English at the University of Dallas is a very important discipline. It's um, the largest department, the English department is. The core curriculum, which we've talked about here quite a bit, has four English courses that are um, foundational to the work that we do at the University of Dallas and and um, really quite transformative for our students. So our, our students, I, I, one of the things that struck me um, at a, a recent American Catholic Philosophical Association meeting, well, I should say this was really a year ago, we had a couple mm-hmm. of, of our notable alumni there um, who are professional philosophers, and um, and yet in their philosophical addresses they kept drawing upon literary mm. references, right? So this is something that, that we do quite a bit. So um, I often like to begin by asking our, our guest a little about him or herself, and, and um, I'm especially interested, Dr. Roper, in, in how you fell in love with literature and how you decided to become a, a, a professor of literature. Well, you know, um, I was actually a science guy. Um, I started at the University of Dallas as a biochem major and went through my uh, well, through my sophomore year into my junior year, thinking that's what I was going to do, um, go to medical school or become a, a researcher, find a cure for cancer, and be on the cover of Time magazine, <laughs> those sorts of things. Pretty good I, there was there was reading in my home. My mom was a reader, took us to the library, and I think that's really crucial. But I think like a lot of people, I went to high school and didn't really enjoy the study of literature in any way whatsoever, right? I had, I had a, I always tell the students, you know, Miss Whitley would ask you, well, what do you think of what this line of poetry says? And, and, you know, my friend John would say one thing and then Jenny would say the complete opposite thing and she would nod at both of them. Oh, that's hmm. nice, you know. And then I had Miss Jones the next year and she would say, what do you think of the image of the tree in, in the third line? And somebody would say, I don't know, growth. Somebody would say nature. And she would say, no, no, no. Eventually, you know, she would get out her secret decoder ring, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the tree would mean, let me see, let me see, the Russian Revolution in 1917. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, t- for both of those, I thought, if, if literature can mean anything we want it to mean, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And mm-hmm. if literature is just, you know, some sort of a secret code, I'll I'll go back to my my chemistry. I'll go back to my you know cells and mitochondria. That's and so that was the way I thought that was a responsible way to find truth. Mm-hmm. I came to the University of Dallas and I had people like Dr. John Alves, whose office is now next door to mine, who just opened me up to a completely new way of seeing that that 
um, literature can convey truth and wisdom, mm -hmm. that it wasn't either this trick or just this kind of subjective nothingness. Mm -hmm. um, and that began to work on me. Mm -hmm. And I began to think there's there's something to this. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm actually learning and, and fascinated by the way you can understand what an author is trying to do for you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really, I think um, my transition away from science became... Um, kind of a philosophical transformation. I thought, why do I want to just make people physically healthy? I want to know what they want to be healthy for. Yeah. And I want to, I want to sort of begin to think about why, why, you know, once you have health, what, what is it that makes a meaningful life? Right. And I found that in literature. I found the address of that in literature and the way you would go. That's interesting. So, you know, I, I'm struck by um, one of the ways that Walker Percy, for instance, describes his literature. He, he studied to be a, uh, in fact, became a medical doctor. Right. And the way that he approached literature, uh, the writing of it, he said, is, is pathologically, right? So it's a kind of pathology of the soul. Um, is that a, a too limited way to think about literature? I think it's one of the ways, and it's really the way that Walker Percy did, did right? He saw his writing as a kind of, as a diagnostician, mm -hmm. right? He was trying to diagnose the ills of the modern world mm -hmm. in his novels. But there's lots of other things you can do with literature as well, I think. So it's one thing to, to fall in love with literature and, and to see it as a, as a source of truth and wisdom, and I, I want to focus on that in, in a, a few minutes, but, um, it, it's quite something more to decide that you're going to teach literature and um, uh, cultivate um, a, a, a kind of devotion to literature over the course of, of one's lifetime. And and so how did how did you come to that decision? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Um, it's funny the way God works, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to teach. I went to graduate school <laughs> because I just thought, well, I've only done this literature stuff for a year and a half or so. I just want to do more of it. But I, I had a sister who was a teacher. I had a brother who was a band director. I thought, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that world. Um, but I just wanted to learn more. Maybe I would write and do something like that. But at the University of Virginia, after the second year, you, they made you teach. Mm -hmm. We were all suddenly uh, cast into uh, Composition 101 classes. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like God just kind of knocking you on the head after a little bit. And I thought, well, I sort of like this. This, mm -hmm. this is sort of interesting. I, um, I look back on those students now, and I think I want to apologize to all of them. I, what a terrible teacher. I mean, let me get sure this straight. This is a guy who didn't like literature, <laughs> who hated to teach, and he becomes the head of the English department at a major Catholic university. Isn't That's it, right. Isn't God good? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it, it's the only funny. explanation for yeah. it. Is that, and I, I found it, it is, it's one of those things that I, I get up in the morning at, at, back then and still do. I get up in the morning, and I get in the shower, and I'm constantly thinking, how am I going to say, how am I going to bring them into something today? What's the real question that they need to, to be asked? Mm -hmm. um, and that's just what, what I still find thrilling. I, still, I love being in front of a group and drawing them out and, and bringing them to, to bear on these, these wonderful things that mm -hmm. we call stories, poems, mm -hmm. um, and, and letting them open up uh, for themselves the wisdom that's there. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about wisdom a little bit. So there... Um, I've discussed on the on the show two major ways of thinking about wisdom, right? Um, sapientially, um, or, or in the sense of the Greek word Sophia, right? So a kind of contemplative wisdom on the one hand, and then there's there's practical wisdom, phronesis or prudentia, in the tradition. And I think literature is a, um, a means to foster both kinds of wisdom. Do you agree with that statement? Oh, exactly, exactly. Right. Aristotle says that literature is between the particulars of history mm -hmm. uh, and the universals of philosophy. 
Um, so that's what, but, but the, the curious thing then is to say, how does literature do that? What, what, what do stories and poems do for us? Mm-hmm. And the example I would, you know, I would sort of get at it this way, which is to say, what do you think of your mother? Mm-hmm. What's your mother like? Uh, if I were to ask you something like that, what, what would you say? Yeah, what is my mother like? She's kind. She's quite um, literary herself. She introduced me to the love of literature. She's um, um, what the glue that holds my um, larger family together. She's saintly. Um, okay, stop right there. So what did you do, right? You first went for adjectives, mm-hmm. right, and tried to find some sort of a fitting adjective. But I could see it on your face, right? You immediately sort of felt the inadequacy of that, and you leapt to metaphor. Mm-hmm. She's the glue that holds my family together, mm-hmm. right? What you're about to do in a minute, I guarantee you, is you're going to tell me a story. Mm-hmm. You're going to say, all right, you want to know my mother? There was this time when. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what stories do. That's what stories, how stories can convey to us. And that's why those, those two teachers were wrong. That you, you weren't going to try to trick me. Right. And you also didn't want to tell me a story that I could make up any meaning of it for. Mm-hmm. You were, you're trying to convey to me the, the essence and the wisdom and the, the, the depth of character mm-hmm. that is your mother. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, the next thing you would do is you would tell me a story. That's true. And that's what's happened. That's what every, Civilization we know does. Mm-hmm. Every, every small group does. Ever since, you know, Og back in the caveman days mm-hmm. would come home and he would want to convey practical wisdom about hunting woolly mammoths. Mm-hmm. But he might also want to convey what it felt like to have the rush of pleasure mm-hmm. from being out and using your body and chasing woolly mammoths. So mm-hmm. literature those stories can convey both the particularities mm-hmm. and the practical wisdom that, say, a Jane Austen has to share with us mm-hmm. about choosing a husband or choosing a wife, but also that larger contemplative wisdom that we can find ourselves in. We're in the midst of a great and fascinating story mm-hmm. that just lifts us up to a, a higher sense of who we are as humans. That's fascinating. Um, you know, I've got two very different directions I'd like to go right now in the interview, and and you tell me what you'd want to uh, pursue. One is, um, in the classroom, we're not just reading literature, we're discussing it. So what, what does that add? I do want to explore that. But I'm also thinking about the craft of, of writing and and the, the, the virtuous um, reader of literature. Um, it's possible for somebody, it seems to me, to be a great craftsperson, of writing and and someone to read well, but some stories aren't as truthful as other stories, right? And and what makes the difference between um, a uh, a truthful account or a truthful narrative, or is that even a sensible way of of articulating this question, and and one that's that's um, faithful? And I don't mean faithful to the facts of the matter. I'm, I'm talking about something that's purely fictional, although something's not quite right. Um, wow, that's a rather large question. So let me see what I can do with that. Um, right, literature it does convey truth to us, but it conveys truth to us through these other means that we call stories, narratives, metaphors, um, images. Um, and insofar as those images lead us to 
the truth of the human condition, the truth, the truths of of God and, and God's nature, mm-hmm. um, then I'm I'm perfectly fine with lots of different means and structures. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love um, I love fantasy mm-hmm. um, as a way of getting at the truth, but I also love a, a, a straightforward, um, you know, gritty, realistic story mm-hmm. to to get at the truth of things as well. But I I think you hit upon something really interesting that might link together the the two questions you wanted to go, and that is the the craft of of say a story, the craft of a poem. And it took me it, it's really only in the last um, five or ten years that I've begun to really integrate the craft of of all sorts of kinds of writing and the craft of, of reading a good story. Because what I found is that students sort of read a story or a novel and they accept it as kind of a given, mm-hmm. but they might not sort of think about the fact that someone had to craft that story. Right. There was a time when Pride and Prejudice wasn't written or was only half written. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jane Austen had narrative problems she had to solve. What am I going to do with, with Bingley? What am I going to do uh, with Lizzie Bennett, um, how am I going to take them to the next scene? And so what I've begun to do in my own classes is get the students to discuss what's the problem that the author is going to have to solve next? Um, what are, how, is they, how are they going to have to shape this next section? And how would you, if you if you had to ne- write the next chapter, if you had to write the, the rest of this sonnet, mm-hmm. how would you solve the problem that you've already constructed for yourself? Right. And often students, uh, we, as you know, in our Litrat 4 class, every student has to write his or her own short story. And uh, what I, you know, constantly moving back and forth, they don't think that Melville, they don't think that Dostoevsky, um, they're great writers. They never had to deal with these things. And I say, no, they, they're having to solve the same problem you're having to solve. Right. Where is the climax? Well, at a certain point, the climax is completely open. But after you begin to work your way through, there's only certain ways that that story can go mm-hmm. because you have crafted and made certain narrative decisions that are propelling the narrative towards certain truths. Mm-hmm. Is he going to kiss the girl? Is she going to slap him? Mm-hmm. At a certain point, those are getting to be the only two options you've constructed for the story. Mm-hmm. So you're leading towards one or the other of those truths, the truth of a rejection or the truth of, of a kind of consummation mm-hmm. of that love. Um, and how you craft that, how you shape the direction of the story and the, the truth of the story that you're getting is the fascinating part to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, so we, we teach literature at the University of Dallas in, in a classroom. We don't have online undergraduate courses in, in literature, right? There's, there's something about being in a classroom that we really value over and above um, what one could get out of from maybe just a, a single conversation with a or a, a one-to-one set of conversations with a, a, a faculty member, a professor of English, right? There's something about the 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 discussion that takes place amongst the students that adds to the reading of the literature. Can, what what is that? Why is that so important? I, I think it's because literature itself is so rich that no one of us, uh, at least if it's a great work of literature, a really rich work of literature, no one of us is ever going to grasp all of it on a first reading or a second or even a third reading. And so it's wonderful to have 20 people with different backgrounds, different experiences, uh, who can come together and see and discover and think about different things. Mm-hmm. I, I learn something every semester, with, uh, no matter how many times I've taught the different texts. Be- first of all, because they are such great and rich texts. Um, but secondly, because I have 
uh, wonderfully intelligent, thoughtful, interesting students in my classes who come and bring their own thoughts and experiences to bear and find things that, that I've not seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it develops a kind of a friendship uh, in that place. The, the other thing I'll say is with the core curriculum, the marvelous thing is they begin to, over the course of their time, develop their own set of references that right. they share with one another. And sharing an intellectual world in friendship mm-hmm. is an astonishing thing. I've taught at other places where I would speak uh, to the group and we'd be having a discussion. And I, I, I remember this like it was yesterday. A young woman on this side um, said, oh, oh, that's just like, and she mentioned something she had read. Well, I had read that book and she had read that book, but no one else in the class had read that book. Mm-hmm. And literally five minutes later, a young man on the other side of the room did the same thing and said, oh, but but the two of them couldn't even share that. I came to the University of Dallas, and in the first semester I was here, I was teaching Chaucer's Wife of Bathsdale, mm-hmm. and students were I, – I, I couldn't get a word in edgewise for five minutes because they had a whole field of references to speak to one another mm-hmm. about Ovid, about uh, Plato and the soul, mm-hmm. about uh, Shakespeare's Tempest that they were all bringing to bear right. because they shared that intellectual culture. And that shared intellectual friendship mm-hmm. is just an astonishing thing that can happen when students share texts and concepts in common with one another. Yeah, no, I, I that's – um, I think so true. I mean, when I first arrived myself at the University of Dallas, um, and I asked current students, upperclassmen in particular, and, and then alumni about their experiences at the University of Dallas, friendship was uh, described again and again as the the chief fruit of the education that they had pursued, and um, and, it, and it's because not only are they sharing in many instances their faith, and that's significant. We have all kinds of shared references there, but uh, they've also shared a, a common pathway through challenging courses, and they have all of these shared references, and it becomes a, um, a mini-culture unto itself. Now, we're ultimately dedicated to reviving the best of Western civilization, and you know, one of the reasons why um, I think that this radio program is important is because I want other people to cultivate those shared references. I mean, this is at the core of, of a, a Catholic culture, Generally, that I, I want to find ways to export from the university. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, uh, um, a Catholic culture that doesn't have Dante, that doesn't have Shakespeare's Tempest, mm-hmm. uh, that that doesn't have Augustine and Walker Percy, mm-hmm. um, is is not as rich and is not as thick, I would say, and and meaty and and uh, rich a kind of culture that we can participate in. So you you mentioned Chaucer, and um, I you know you'd be surprised to hear this taught. Chaucer one time, I, I taught in a, a great books honors program um, off and on um, as a, a kind of side gig um, and um, also went to a, a great books um, based high school. But I, I, you know, why do we read Chaucer? Right. So I, I could come up with some reasons why we read Chaucer, but you're an expert in reading Chaucer. And um, many of my students want to know, why are we reading this stuff? And, and they get excited about some of the ribald jokes and, and things like that. But that's not why we read Chaucer. So. Well, that, uh, you know, start with some statistics. Um, more books, articles of a of scholarly type are published on Chaucer than any other author in our tradition but Shakespeare mm-hmm. at this date. This is the golden age of of. Chaucer studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's hot. He's interesting. And why, and why is that? I think because he has such a rich 
um, complex uh, notion of the human condition. He, mm-hmm. His great work is sets these people on the way to Canterbury, that mm-hmm. is metaphorically, right, on the way to our proper end in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that, on that pilgrimage uh, is every kind of human being. Mm-hmm. There's, there's the, the body obnoxious miller. There's the pious prioress. Uh, there's the, the, the monk who is not a terribly good monk. Um, and what you see in that is Chaucer's embracing of every different aspect of the human condition. Um, and, and what's fascinating to me is that they don't actually get to Canterbury. Mm-hmm. They, they end at the edge of Canterbury. That is, Chaucer takes us through that process to the very edge of, of where we are. But unlike Dante, we don't see the beatific vision. He's mm-hmm. the poet of this world and the complexities and the difficulties and the struggles of this world. Mm-hmm. But you sense that he loves us all despite our foolishness and our goofiness. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So many people are interested or fall in love with literature. They go to college and they find that literature is not taught as literature in their classes, right? So maybe literary criticism, you know, there's something distinctive about the way that we teach literature at the University of Dallas that didn't used to be so distinctive. How do, how do we encourage a revival of, of reading literature for the truth and wisdom that we can glean from it? And, and I'm going to let you have the last word. We've got, I think, about 45 uh, seconds. 45 seconds. No pressure, okay? <laughs> no pressure at all. And if you can wrap into, into that and, and um, maybe if, if there's one book that everyone should read. Um, well, the Canterbury Tales, of course. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I, I would say that... Um, we just need people to get together in friendship reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, as, as you say, at far too many English departments across the nation, people do not believe that truth exists, do not believe human nature exists. Uh, I'm sure most of them do not believe God exists. Uh, but if you can read literature under the aspect of those things, mm-hmm. um, as we do at the University of Dallas, if you believe that the point of doing this is to achieve wisdom and understanding, um, then you enter into it, I think, in a, in a completely different way, and you can enter into it with friendship with others. So reading groups, uh, people getting together, participating um, with one another, just to read good, rich literature, mm-hmm. um, it, it really carries itself in many ways. Very good. I want to thank you both for being here, Dr. Sanford and also Dr. Roper. This is the University of Dallas segment here on the Good news show. Very interesting conversation. I appreciate it very much. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you in the new year. We are re- renewing the agreement for 2019, that's, right? That you keep on coming back. That's the right? plan if you'll keep having uh, me. No, no, so. we enjoy this. Thank you very much. Thank and uh, just one 